I love color, and I'm going to tell you why. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kurt Staley, a.k.a. That Plastics Guy. If you're new here, this is where I share four decades of plastics industry experience with you, solo for now, guest coming in the future. I'll be educating, sharing stories, talking about my product offerings, and always discussing topics and trends that affect our industry. Today's podcast, as always, is sponsored by Simcoe Plastics, where we have a passion for polymers. Visit us at simcoplastics.com or contact us if you wish at info at simcoplastics.com. On last week's podcast, I talked about polyolefins, which are really the major building block of our industry. And that got me thinking, what's another aspect of our industry that is significant, not only in terms of the industry, but something that the consumer can relate to? And the answer was clear to me. Or should I say it came to me in Technicolor? Yes, let's do a podcast about color. As I said on the show's cold open, I love color. Why? There are so many reasons. You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind uh, with respect to the perspective of being in the industry, colorant, color, is really the last true blending of art and science that we have within our industry. I mean, yes, you could argue that the creation of new polymers or new compounds with new properties, yeah, that's kind of a bit of an art. But in the truest sense of what art is about, color is really the basics of it. And I think it's so incredibly fascinating. And why is it? Well, color is emotive. As humans, we respond to color. The animal kingdom utilizes color to do everything from attract mates, hide from prey, or to signal danger or poison. The recognition of color is hardwired into our DNA. Our eyes pick up on red, green, and blue, specifically more sensitive than other colors. It is really a joke about sports cars being painted arrest me red. Well, no, not really. And if you have a red car, please watch your speed. They've got you marked. Color elicits emotion. Blue has been shown to be a color associated with trust, loyalty, and sincerity, among other traits. Yellow is associated with joy, happiness, optimism, and hope. Green is associated with nature, health, hope, as well as envy. Would designing products and packaging, would color selection simply be left to chance? Well, of course not. While having utilitarian purposes such as coating left and right hand parts, for example, in assembly, the use of color is quite central to marketing. In the automotive industry, entire departments are dedicated to color development for interior and exterior applications. Accent colors, fabric colors, two-tone combinations, paint colors, shades of metal flake, yes, the actual shade of metal flake in the paint. Predicting these trends is a big deal. Think about fashion or interior design as well. Color development may be several seasons ahead of its actual debut time. Have you ever noticed there seems to be a certain wall paint color that just takes off every season? Color is big business, 
and it's taken seriously in many industries. As an amateur photographer, one of my many interests, who made the jump from film to digital many years ago, uh, probably a few more years than I'd actually care to, uh, to mention, um, like all photographers, we had to adjust to many new variables to manage in the creation of images. And one of them was color temperature. So we're going to talk about one of the first technical things with respect to color. And color temperature in insofar as how it relates to lighting. Have you ever noticed that a certain cast is a certain color cast is in a room with the objects in it? Well, look closely. These objects will cast a certain color, specifically lighting. And that cast that comes from lighting is referred to as color temperature. And color temperature from lighting is measure, measured, sorry, is measured in Kelvin, abbreviated to K. Conventional tungsten lamps, for example, are between 2700 to 3200 K, Kelvin, while fluorescent lights approach 8000 Kelvin, or K. Right around 5000 and up to 6500 K is a very pure light that is close to the sun at high noon. Why is this important? As objects we see reflect the light that they are exposed to, Color matching must take into account this light source. In the automotive, for example, in automotive applications, colors are matched and reviewed in so-called D65 or daylight 6500 Kelvin, which is supposed to create the most neutral means of viewing a color without a reflectant color cast. While making sense in practice, a challenge arises from a cognition towards, a cognitive bias rather, towards warm light. We as humans really like to see things a touch warmer than they usually are. We'll, be, we'll respond more favorably to that than if color casts are on the blue or cold side. So going back to photography a moment, dusk and dawn are referred to as the golden hours for a very good reason. And you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who has a dislike of a warm color bias. But dislike of that cooler bias, which comes ironically from high noon D65 color temperature, is actually quite common. So in color matching, many mainstream shades do have a mild warm bias built into them. Uh, just for example, uh, a shade of black from Chrysler, DX9 black. Yes, it's black, but it's less jet or blue, <clears throat> and excuse me, more on ever so slightly the warmer side. So it's yellow with, it's black with a touch of yellow. Sorry, I gave away the punchline there. It's black with a slight amount of yellow just to shift it into a warmer hue. And these, we call them undertones, are actually done very frequently and give colors this wonderful nuance. So cooled bias colors tend to create a very bold appearance, but are wisely used sparingly because they can be a little bit jarring. Look at the most popular house color paints or automotive interior colors, especially contemporary hues. Most are definitely on the warmer and calming side. Even colors like grays, for example, you'll find they're typically just a bit warmer. It's subtle though. So how does basic color theory translate into the world of plastics? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
In order to make an otherwise neutral to milky white plastic resin take on color, we must somehow put pigments or dyes into that plastic. When molten, the pigments or dyes will disperse into the plastic resin, and I mean when the resin itself is molten. And with the help of mixing under heat and pressure, uh, typically via compounding or directly on the end of the plastics processing equipment, which I'll get to in a moment, that plastic will turn, i.e. the finished product, into the desired color. So how is this achieved? The tried and true method is by creating a color master batch. In this process, a plastic pellet is created that contains the proper mix of pigments and additives to create the color when mixed with the target resin to bring you the end product. Think, for example, if you've ever had paint matched at you know, a leading hardware store, I'm not going to name names, uh, but you'll, they'll take a can of white paint, put it on some type of carousel, and inject certain amounts of different colored, liquid-colored pigments. And you'll wonder, well, how is this going to create the color that I want? The paint can is agitated uh, for you know, a couple minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and when the paint can is open, it's magically the hue that you wanted to achieve. So in plastics, that is done with mixing in dry pigments, compounding them, and putting that into the final product, the final resin. So now I have to get back to my spot here. These pellets that contain the colorant are made by dry blending pigments and carrier resin together in large pieces of mixing equipment that will apply enough force and or heat to create a thorough dispersion of the pigment and the base resin. The dispersed mixture is moved from a blending process to extrusion equipment. When this blend is metered into the extruder that's brought up to correct heat to melt the base resin, the mixture is made molten and the screws in the extruder will further mix the mixture, move it forward through the equipment, plasticize or melt it, and the molten product will come out the other end through a dye plate, which typically will form spaghetti-like strands. These strands are moved through a cooling bath, so they become hard, and then these strands go into a cutting machine. The cutting machine will typically cut the strands into you know, maybe an eighth of an inch long. Now the pellets, and by the way, about an eighth of an inch in diameter as well. So these pellets are now ready to ship to the plastic processor who will turn them into, along with the base resin of the part, a finished color part. So just to summarize, dry pigments are mixed with a base resin. That mix is moved to an extruder. The extruder does the final job of melting that entire mix, giving it a proper mix, it's extruded and pelletized. That is what we call a color master batch. The color master batch can be shipped to a plastics processor and if it's injection molding or if it's film, profile extrusion, uh, blow molding, whatever the case, to turn into a finished part. Now in very high volume applications, liquid colorant, a dye typically, can be fed directly into a molding machine and thus bypassing the color compounding process that I just described. Applications that may use this technique could include, but are certainly not limited to, garbage cans, 
some styles of larger recycling bins, high volume food containers. Due to the relatively messier nature and prolonged cleanup procedures involved in dealing with liquid colorants and transitioning from color to color with this type of uh, color delivery system, uh, the applications tend to be more high volume, larger parts with a steady and large order volume uh, production cadence. So you're not going to run a liquid colorant on 50 parts, but you might do it on 5,000 or 50,000 or 500,000. The bigger the number, the better. So you're not going to find liquid colorant used in low volume custom applications. Another very important aspect of color is UV protection. Plastics will break down first and foremost via UV damage. I'm sure we've all seen a piece of what was uh, a clear polycarbonate or the like turn yellow over time. Likely you may have seen this with your clear headlight lenses on cars. And this has become a standard design on vehicles for quite some time now. That clear material is polycarbonate. It's an incredibly durable, scratch resistant material, but it has its limitations too. And after a prolonged period of time, <clears throat> excuse me, the UV protection in that clear lens will break down and the lens you will see will start to develop a foggy yellow tint. Uh, let's see. So in the case of that automotive lens, a fine polish treatment can remove the topmost layer of the damaged material that is yellow and some of the, uh, the, the frosty look um, that, that goes with it. So that can be done with polycarbonate because it is an incredibly tough material. But what about other kinds of materials? Could you just buff out yellowing? Well, no, don't count on that. The answer is to ensure that a colorant master batch, when we're talking about colored parts, a lot of clear parts can be buffed out. I just want to make sure that uh, that distinction is there. So we're talking about going from clear polycarbonate automotive lenses to say automotive exterior trim that's UV stable and molded in color. Can that be buffed back to color? Well, no, not really, unfortunately. So the answer is putting a UV stabilizer into the colorant that will go into those types of applications. So the protection can be fine-tuned to deliver whatever protection you're looking for from exterior out, exterior um, UV rays, and even interior UV rays. So think about things that uh, would sit in typical office environment, furniture, desks, office equipment. If that is near a window, you will see over time that when sunlight comes through that window, it will make a discernible yellowed mark on wherever it hits that piece of office equipment. So yes, even interior applications do require, uh, by good practice, some form of UV stabilization. And in the industry, we talk about UV stabilization generically in terms of years of protection, two years, five years, or 10 years, as would be the example in exterior automotive trim components. So the amount of time that you're looking for in protection will dictate the amount and the type of UV blockers that are added to the colorant master batch. And in some cases, UV blockers may be added uh, to order, I'm sorry, I think I made a mistake there. 
in some cases, a combination of UV blockers may be added in order to achieve the desired level of protection. Some may release a little bit quicker than another type of chemistry of UV blocker. So we'll mix two together. Now, why do we put it in the colorant? We can achieve proper dispersion of the UV protectant within the color concentrate. We know that, we can do that. And if the color is evenly dispersed in the part during the molding process, then we can virtually guarantee that we have good even distribution of UV coverage in the finished part. Moving on. And in case you think UV ray penetration isn't a real issue, and I think we're all but all but a few of us are pretty much aware of what's happening with climate change and sun intensity. I can tell you from my personal experience that the domestic automakers have doubled their UV requirements, and that was 20 years ago. So maybe they've made an adjustment again, I don't know, but I can certainly tell you about 20 years ago, their test criteria actually doubled. So what does that mean? That means their requirement of ensuring that the parts meet a certain sun exposure which is measured in kilojoules of energy, that number doubled. So when I first started in automotive supply in the late 1990s, um, 2,500 kilojoules of exterior exposure protection was considered sufficient. The bar was raised to 5,000 kilojoules, um, I would say 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. So that type of testing, by the way, so we, we can evaluate if we've created a formulation that can protect against that level of protection. That type of testing is done in a piece of equipment called an accelerated weatherometer. So this machine will hold numerous test plaques. So colorant master batch put in with a base resin shot into a mold that produces a test plaque, maybe three inch by three inch, something along those lines, and typically an eighth of an inch thick. So this machine will hold numerous test plaques while beams of arc xenon light hit the test panels with enough light over a given period of time in the machine to duplicate natural sunlight, with the end result being to hit this 5,000 kilojoule exposure. In addition to this mode of testing, we'll call it an artificial test. Uh, it is also not only common, but it's still standard practice that automotive OEMs have these test plaques. Numerous, uh, numerous text, text plaques are made when colors are developed. These test plaques will be sent to real world locations for outdoor exposure testing, typically over a 24 month period perhaps longer now, but when I was in the industry actively developing colorant, 24 month. These test uh, locations are in Florida or Arizona and Arizona. I assume it's still both. Um, certainly that was the case when I was in the industry. Those are two spots in the United States that just have a tremendous amount of sunlight exposure and is really, the, it literally is the testing ground for UV protection and colorants. So another element that makes colors truly fascinating is when we start to add special effects to them. So one that we should be quite familiar with 
is metallic. So most would associate this with automotive paint, and that would be correct. As I understood it, the first car maker to utilize metallic paint was Mercedes-Benz in their pre-World War II 500 and 540K series of, uh, of cars, and these are um, absolute classics now. Um, I did do a quick internet search, though, and one result came up suggesting that a Chrysler brand, DeSoto, had metallic paint in 1929. So I'm sure you could go down a very deep rabbit hole and, and have uh, lively discussions with people on um, collector car forums about who had the first metallic paint. Uh, but we'll leave it at that. Maybe it was DeSoto, Chrysler, 1929. But let's just say it's been, well, it's been quite some time. And metallic, it is truly metallic. In plastics, aluminum filings of different size or aspect ratios are used to create this familiar finish. The aluminum filings are suspended in that mix of pigment and base resin. And when molded, they come to the surface and they give that familiar speckling under light, that speckling we would see in automotive paint, for example. So the fillings, they re, the, the filings rather, retain their integrity during the compounding and molding process and provide that wonderful, unique finish, but it does have some challenges. The metallic flakes will orient in the direction that plastic flows when a part is being molded. And there is a lot of pressure in excess of 1,500 PSI. And I'll get to that in my next podcast, but we'll leave that for a moment. Converging lines of molten plastic in the mold can create unusual and generally not desirable patterns <clears throat> in the metallic particles. This is the orientation. So care has to be taken during tooling design and again at processing to minimize these flow patterns. And it has been done in very large automotive components. It is not easy to injection mold metallic with a reliable, repeatable result, but it is possible. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pearlescent finishes are another special effect that we can impart to colorants. The pearl might be described as almost a haze with a mild reflective quality. Pearl is a separate additive that can be compounded into colorants. It can be added in conjunction with the metallic, for example. In my opinion, it tends to look its best with relatively lighter colors that allow the light reflection to play between the base underlying color and the pearl. And the pearl acts as almost an overtone to the color. It's a very subtle, it's very nuanced, but it's a lovely effect. And it's easier to see than to describe, but to cite... <laughs> it's easier to see than to describe, but suffice it to say, and I'm sorry I said it wrong again, uh, the pearl effect looks better with some colors than others. Fluorescent colors are another tool to add a wow factor to your parts. Also referred to as Daglo, as the, uh, the brand name as one of the suppliers, these colorants are hyperchromatic or intense. They are expensive as they are heavily loaded with organic pigments and ship as pre-dispersed. So rather than a dry pigment, they're already pre-compounded into a pellet that can be added to your formulation. And it's pre-dispersed because there is such a high loading of that organic pigment, it might otherwise be somewhat unruly to handle in conventional mixing equipment. 
So like them or not, these colors are hard to ignore. They are trendy. And when they're on, you see them everywhere. And they reflect light so intensely and they create this vivid effect. It's fun to play with them from a marketing standpoint, but I'd recommend using day glow or fluorescent colors quite sparingly. You know, they come and go, but when they're popular, man, oh man, they are popular. I also wanted to touch on pigments, and this could be an entire podcast in and of itself because it's such um, a diverse and deep dive into what really constitutes colorant and how pigments are made. But the basic is pigmentation. This is what creates color in everything that we see from paint, wall paint, paint on steel, car bodies, to plastics. It's pigment. Artists, when they paint, they're using pigments suspended in an acrylic or an oil base that they put on a canvas. As I discussed earlier, pigment can be powder or liquid dye. But let's spend the last couple of minutes talking about powdered pigments. Over the years, the industry has thankfully moved away from heavy metal pigments such as chromium and cadmium in favor of organic pigments. Organic pigments are more costly and relatively speaking less potent, but still deliver beautiful colors in thankfully a much safer manner. Two of the cornerstone pigments that are not color are black and white, specifically titanium dioxide or TiO2 for white and carbon black to make black. These two pigments are used to lighten or darken other colors or maybe standalone pigments depending on the application. Both pigments are available in a variety of sizes, tints, aspect ratios to impart certain processing characteristics or maintain budgetary constraints. Yes, I think I need to do another podcast just on pigments and then on how color readings are taken and how texture can impact color perception. Oh, color is a big topic and so much fun for me to talk about. And this is going to bring me to the end of this episode talking about color. I hope you have gained some knowledge about this incredibly fascinating area of our industry. And I hope you'll forgive me for a couple of uh, trip-ups that I made, but I just wanted to, to get on and bring you this podcast, and uh, hopefully you will forgive me. On the next episode, I'll discuss the basics of injection molding and shed some light on why it's such a versatile processing method for so many parts that we see every day. You know, I can't thank you enough for listening to the podcast. There's so much information that I want to share with you, and I do hope you will let me, you will stay with me as I do just that. As always, drop me a line and let me know what you think of the show and if you have questions. And if your questions are good, I just may turn them into a podcast. But I promise you, I will answer as quickly as I possibly can. Simcoe Plastics is on Instagram and Facebook. There is a Simcoe Plastics YouTube channel where I had a series of videos that I did several years ago talking about recycling and some other basic issues in the industry. So I think it's safe to say it's sort of morphed into this podcast. Maybe one day I'll get back to doing video and a podcast. Who knows? That's, that's future marketing. I'll have to think about that. But anyway, thank you again for listening. Take care. 
and bye for now.